Welcome to the MCG Podcast Network. Today is June 8th, 2023. My name is Snapper Plone, and in this episode, we are joined by MCG Associate Vice President and Managing Editor, Dr. William Rifkin, and MCG Managing Editor for Medicare Compliance, Cheyenne Zykovsky. Dr. Rifkin oversees research, guideline writing, and other content development focused on acute inpatient care. Before joining MCG in 2009, he was an associate professor of clinical medicine and the director of internal medicine residency program at Jacoby Medical Center Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. Prior to that, he was an academic hospitalist and associate residency program director at two other New York hospitals and at the Yale Primary Care Internal Medicine Residency Program in New Haven, Connecticut. He has published research in the areas of hospital medicine and quality of clinical care. He graduated from the State University of New York Stony Brook School of Medicine, completed his internal medicine training at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City, and is board certified in internal medicine. Ms. Zykovsky oversees research, guideline writing, and other content development focused on Medicare national and local clinical policy. Before joining MCG in 2018, she was the clinical lead at WPS Government Health Administrators, a Medicare Administrative Contractor, or MAC. There she led the clinical operations, uh, ensured a cohesive program integrity strategy across policy, education, and medical review. And prior to that, her experience includes the development and implementation of national provider training programs and managing medical review operations for multiple Medicare jurisdictions. She is a graduate of the University of Alabama Ms. Zykovsky received her master's degree in nursing from the Capstone College of Nursing and is also a registered nurse. So Cheyenne and Bill, thank you for joining us uh, today and welcome to the program. Thanks for uh, inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here to, to talk about this, this new rule and its implications. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this topic and as we all learn more about it, uh, see what we could work together over the next year. So I think we'd like to start with a discussion around the recently released CMS final rule on Medicare Advantage. It was published in April. However, before we jump into that, just in case some of our listeners may not have a clinical background or maybe a little bit new to the Medicare policy part of the industry, um, Cheyenne, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of the differences between Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare? Sure, that's a great question. For individuals who qualify for Medicare, there are two main types of programs for them to choose from. The first is original Medicare, which is also known as Medicare fee-for-service or traditional Medicare. This plan is offered by the federal government and it's managed by companies called Medicare Administrative Contractors or MACs, which are assigned to specific states. The original Medicare health plan has two parts to its benefits. Part A, which is hospital insurance, and Part B, which is medical insurance. Original Medicare doesn't cover outpatient drugs, so if you want Medicare drug coverage, which is called Part D, you have to buy an individual separate Medicare drug plan. Also with Original Medicare, individuals pay a deductible after the costs are split between Medicare and the individual in the form of coinsurance and deductibles. There's no cap on the amount of coinsurance a person may have to pay each year. So individuals can also shop for and buy something called supplemental coverage if they need that. So it's a little bit of a piecemeal. Original Medicare gets you A and B, you can add part D, you can add supplemental coverage. So then the second type of program is called Medicare Advantage. Now it is also known as Medicare Part C. 
This is a Medicare health plan that is offered by a private company that has a contract with Medicare and the federal government. These plans always include the services found in Part A and Part B of Original Medicare, but they also usually include Part D drug coverage, and they can also include some extra benefits that Original Medicare doesn't cover. So it's more of like a one-stop shop for all of your benefits. Some of these plans will also have lower out-of-pocket costs than what you might experience with traditional or original Medicare. As a trade-off, individuals with Medicare Advantage plans must use doctors or other providers who are in-network for the plan, and they may need to get a referral to see a specialist, and some services will require prior approval. With original Medicare, individuals can see any doctor or go to any hospital that takes Medicare, and they usually don't need a referral or a prior authorization. So a little bit more controlled network with Medicare Advantage, but you get additional benefits. For those who maybe haven't heard about the final rule, or perhaps maybe they haven't had time to read the entire text, you know, what do you think uh, the issues that CMS was trying to address with this new rule on Medicare Advantage? So since this is the annual Medicare Advantage final rule, there are a lot of changes. So there's a final rule for the Medicare Advantage plan that comes out every single year. For this conversation, I'm going to narrow the scope of those changes to those that impact either the prior authorization or the medical necessity determination space, rather than some of the other areas that are addressed in the rule, such as star ratings or marketing restrictions. In this final rule, CMS is attempting to ensure better consistency in coverage for Part A and Part B benefits across the two types of plans. And they're also trying to ensure that members of MA plans have timely access to care, that some of the prior authorization requirements aren't actually putting up an unnecessary barrier to care. And they've done this really through a combination of clarifications and new rules. And they've done this in response to both feedback from the provider and beneficiary communities that there may be issues surrounding authorizations and prior authorizations for care, and also based on some findings from a recent OIG report that also seemed to indicate that there were some issues with both prior authorizations and uh, actual payment authorizations for some of these services. So when we look at the combination of clarifications and new rules, the first set affect the prior authorization space, and there are new limits on prior authorization for Medicare Advantage plans. So first and foremost, MA plans may only utilize prior authorization process to confirm whether a patient's care is medically necessary. So they can't have any kind of non-clinical prior authorization. Once an item or service is approved via prior authorization or pre-service determination of coverage or payment, it may not be denied coverage later due to a lack of medical necessity, unless there is good cause or evidence of fraud. So if there was enough medical necessity on the front end to approve the prior authorization, you can't later say there wasn't enough medical necessity and deny it after the fact. Prior authorizations must be valid for as long as medically reasonable and necessary to avoid disruptions in care, and that is in accordance with applicable coverage criteria, the patient's medical history, and the treating provider's recommendation. And MA plans must provide for a 90-day transition period when an enrollee currently undergoing treatment 
switches to a new MA plan. That means no prior authorization of services that are in progress during that 90-day period. So there's also some new clarifications and rules around making the medical necessity determination as part of either the prior authorization or pre-service or pre-payment review process. And these new rules say that MA plans must comply with national and local coverage determinations, that is NCDs and LCDs, and general coverage and benefit conditions included as part of traditional Medicare laws. Now, national coverage determinations are policies released by CMS that apply to all Medicare beneficiaries, regardless of where the service takes place. And local coverage determinations are policies released by the Medicare administrative contractors that apply to services being provided in that MAX region. So those policies can vary slightly from MAC to MAC. And there was always general agreement that the MA plans needed to follow NCDs and LCDs, but there was some discrepancy about whether or not MA plans needed to follow general coverage and benefit conditions that are included as part of traditional Medicare laws. And so this clarification states that they do have to do that. So then only where not fully established by Medicare. So only where coverage criteria isn't fully laid out by Medicare in the statutes, regulations, and NCD or an LCD, can an MA plan create their own internal coverage criteria. And when they create that internal coverage criteria, it must be based on current evidence in widely used treatment guidelines or clinical literature. In cases where the MA plan creates internal coverage criteria, that criteria and the evidence supporting the criteria must be made publicly accessible. Um, there is some confusion over what CMS means by the term publicly available because it's not defined within the final rule. And so you can define publicly available very broadly or you can define publicly available in a very narrow scope. We do have a product at NCG that we have used in other states that have requirements for guidelines to be publicly available. And so for that reason, we do currently believe that with some slight modifications, our site for guideline transparency tool could be used in fulfilling that transparency for um, our MA plans as well. That being said, because it is ambiguous within the final rule, we are working with CMS to get some additional clarification around our assumptions made with the site for guideline transparency tool. And finally, MA plans are now uh, required to establish a utilization management committee to review policies annually and ensure consistency with traditional Medicare's national and local coverage decisions and guidelines. So Cheyenne, can you inform our listeners how MCG Medicare compliance as well as other MCG content are still applicable in this post-CMS rule environment? Sure, absolutely. So M Medicare compliance content from MCG contains all local coverage determinations, national coverage determinations, and local coverage analyses uh, in a very easy to use way to make finding those documents for our MA plans quick and easy and integratable into their workflow. So nothing about this final rule changes the applicability of MCR content to Medicare Advantage plans. So anyone who's currently using that content or interested in that content can continue to use MCR as they would today.
When it comes to the other content volumes, there is still applicability for this as well. Um, the main issue with the new final rule is that designation of services that are fully described by Medicare statute and services that are not fully described by Medicare statute. And there isn't an official list of those services. And so there's going to be some room for interpretation on which services are fully described and which services are not. But in many cases, even in cases like, say, for instance, the two midnight rule, the two with the two midnight rule, there has to be a reasonable expectation of two midnights worth of hospital care. And there isn't a lot of guidance within CMS regulations on what makes a reasonable um, assumption that they're going to need two midnights of care. Um, and in fact, if you're working in the Medicare administrative contractor world, those instructions, which are in the internet only manuals, actually still require the max to use a screening tool in order to determine whether or not that expectation is reasonable or not. So this is a place where MCG content can continue to help our MA plans with admissions in the acute care space. So while Medicare Advantage plans now have to follow the two midnight rule and are expected to make sure that Medicare Advantage beneficiaries are not staying in observation past that second midnight, they still absolutely need that additional guidance that is provided in the mission criteria in, in our content volumes in order to determine whether hospital care is reasonable at all. This also happens in places like skilled nursing facilities. So skilled nursing facility, one of the main requirements is that the beneficiary has to have a daily skill. And CMS regulations do give a very short list of services that are definitely considered skilled. They also give a very short list of services that are definitely not skilled. And then everything else in between those two extremes is just kind of up for interpretation. But when you look at the admission criteria that's in our recovery facility guidelines, you are going to see by diagnosis additional things that would be considered skilled for that particular beneficiary. So the MA plans don't have to come up with that list of skills, comprehensive skills on their own. They can see it right inside of our criteria set. Thank you, Cheyenne. So Dr. Rivkin, let's turn to you. There's also sort of a second component of this rule, and can you explain some of that to us? Yeah, the second main impact of, of the new rule was actually a reiteration of and clarification of current policy. Uh, the rule makes clear that the inpatient-only list apply to Medicare Advantage patients. For uh, quite some time, there's been a little bit of debate and discussion about whether that was the case or not. So uh, the inpatient-only list, of course, is uh, simply that. It's a list of procedures by CPT code that have to be performed or billed on the inpatient level uh, in order to be paid. So this it's a list of uh, procedures that are very involved and very complicated. And so they just wanted to make clear that whatever was true for traditional Medicare patients is now also true about that list for Medicare Advantage patients. That's not so complicated. The other piece is the two midnight rule. Now the two midnight rule has been around for quite some time, but this new rule clarified that it, it applies uh, equally to Medicare Advantage patients. So briefly, the two midnight rule uh, is, is a guidance for uh, when 
a Part A or inpatient bill should be submitted and paid versus a Part B or outpatient bill. And the two midnight rule is called that because the, the standard is whether the judgment, whether a patient needs medically necessary hospital-based care across two or more midnights. And this holds for both medical and surgical patients. So in, in the typical scenario, somebody's in the ED, let's say with uh, heart failure, and the judgment that the uh, clinicians have to make uh, is whether they think the patient is going to require care in the hospital across two or more midnights. And so sometimes that's very obvious from the get-go and they're very sick and that's not a problem. And sometimes there's less, they're less sick and that's where observation care comes in. But in terms of, which we can talk about in a bit, but in terms of the, the, the new rule, it was clarifying that the, the two midnight rule also applies to Medicare Advantage patients. And I think this is a useful clarification uh, for the market. It, so it's, it's been around for a while, for example, the surgical example is somebody has a procedure and the question is whether they'll need, they have, they have, a, they have a need for hospital-based care across two or more midnights post-operatively. So if somebody has their surgery Monday afternoon and they're post-op by 8 p.m. on Monday, the question is whether they'll need hospital-based care across Monday and then Tuesday's midnight. Um, and with some procedures, that's an easy call. For some procedures, that's not such an easy call. You, know, you have to see what happens the next day and make decisions from there. Same thing holds for medical patients, uh, where uh, sometimes it's very obvious that somebody is very ill and they're going to cross two midnights. And sometimes it's, uh, it's not so obvious. And I think that the, the variation of what the finish line was, you know, observation care is that space where patients can be put from the ED, talking about medical observation care. Um, and it's a time and space to sort of see how they respond to treatment and see if indeed they're going to continue to need hospital-based care. The problem with this was always how long is observation care? And this varied by payer, it, it varied by uh, contractual agreement, payer to payer. So this now, between the traditional Medicare and the Medicare Advantage patients, this is the majority of inpatients for most diagnoses in the hospital. So it's sort of becoming the de facto finish line, uh, the de facto ruler to use when evaluating whether somebody continues to need observation care or meets criteria for admission is going to be the two midnight rule. So that kind of leads me to the next question here. So with respect to inpatient medical admission, you know, there's always been a lot of debate about, you know, admitting a patient in the hospital under observation versus inpatient. We hear that a lot from our clients. What are the some of the differences in observation versus inpatient, you know, status from a hospital's perspective, but also maybe from the patient's perspective? Sure, that's a good question. So, you know, for observation care, when we're talking about this, it's usually... Um, we're talking about medical admissions. Uh, observation care in the surgical realm is something different. So I mentioned that the two midnight rule applies to surgical cases, but for a discussion about observation care, we're really considering medical diagnoses of patients in the ED. And what used to be a straightforward, or at least part, more straightforward decision of admit versus don't admit when most of us trained has now become a three-part decision over the past 10, 15, 20 years this thing called observation care. And it's of importance to payers and providers primarily because it denotes what the payment level will be. If somebody's admitted to the hospital as an inpatient, it's usually a higher 
remuneration for the for the hospital if somebody is admitted under observation care and doesn't become inpatient down the road that's a lower level of remuneration so obviously there's this contention between payers and providers over you know the money and from a patient point of view the, the main impact is that a inpatient admission uh, is paid under part a of their benefits so it has the deductibles and coinsurance and the limits of a Part A coverage, which is usually more generous than the Part B coverage, which is if you're in observation care, your coverage is through your Part B benefits. And that very much depends on uh, the details of your plan. And there's wholly different uh, deductibles and coinsurance. And I think in most cases, um, and there are exceptions, but in most cases, um, the patient is going to have more out-of-pocket costs in an out in a uh, observation care uh, stay than in an inpatient stay. Again, a lot depends on whether they've met the deductible or not, and some of the details of their coverage and their medical history. But in, in broad strokes, that's sort of the story. So, observation care it then becomes a a very high stakes decision for all parties involved, and. Um, what our content attempts to do, because we have criteria for both inpatient and observation care, is that a patient comes into the ED and we have criteria that denote that the patient is very, very sick and this patient is overwhelmingly likely to stay two or more midnights in the hospital and need care for that, for that duration. So they should be admitted for inpatient right off the bat, no real need for observation care. And then we have uh, criteria. And again, depending on the diagnosis, this is most patients or not most patients, are not quite that sick. So it's not a, an obvious need for two or more midnights. So they come in at Monday at 10, a, uh, 10 in the morning with COPD. Um, and you're not sure when you first see them whether they're, go they're going to need to stay across Tuesday's midnight into Wednesday. You know, it's a long time away. So the role of observation care is, okay, they're not ready to go home from the ED. They meet our observation care admission criteria, which means we're not done yet. They're not ready to be released. So we need more time. And so they get admitted to observation care where you could continue to evaluate them, continue to monitor the patient and uh, initiate and continue uh, treatment and see how they respond. So that for using our example, Let's say it's now Tuesday afternoon. They spent one midnight in observation care. By Tuesday afternoon, it's a much easier judgment. It's a much easier decision to say, based on the way they look now, I think they're going to be ready to go home soon. Or no, they're going to continue to need hospital care until at least uh, tomorrow. So therefore, we're going to admit them. And I, and, I, and I think the important piece of this is that when you put in observation care, it's entirely possible that you will end up as an inpatient. And our criteria sort of works that way. Whereas if you're in observation care and you don't meet our observation care discharge criteria, so meaning you're ready to go home, if you don't meet those criteria within, let's say, the two midnight uh, timeframe, using that as the, rule, the ruler, um, failure to meet those discharge milestones will mean you will meet one of our inpatient admission criteria, the sort of mirror images of each other. You know, shortness of breath improved and ready to go home is a discharge criteria. Shortness of breath not improved despite observation care is an admission criteria. So there's sort of a circle. And the whole point of observation care is supposed to be that if they continue to need hospital care across that second midnight, they should become inpatients. 
And if they don't, if they're ready to go home, let's say that Tuesday afternoon, then they would have been uh, treated in observation care and their stay would be under Part B payment. And, and, and that's the way sort of the circle would work and how our content would fit in with that side. Does this really simplify decision-making for hospitals? It simplifies in that we write our criteria. We have to have some rubric in mind when we're writing criteria. You know, how sick do you have to be? How sick is too sick for ops care? How, how sick is sick enough for inpatient? We have to have some rubric in our mind when we're writing those criteria. And the two midnight rule is actually a, a, a good rubric to use. So to the degree that we're beginning to coalesce around a, a agreed uh, uh, observation care duration of, let's say, two days or you know less than two midnights, whatever you want to shade it with, to the degree that that becomes standardized or that becomes the usable case, I think will help clinicians when they're evaluating a patient, they will have this, they, they can have this ruler in mind and not say, well, gee, because it's this payer, it's, it's, a, it's a 24-hour observation care because it's this payer, it's a 72-hour observation care. So they'll just have some sort of um, standard in mind when they're evaluating a patient as to, well, okay, so we're talking about two midnights. So when I'm looking at this patient, it'll be different if I'm looking at them Monday at six in the morning versus Monday at 11 p.m. You know, there's, there'll be less time to the two midnights in the latter situation, and that plays a role. Um, but the idea is that with a with a set ruler, I think a lot of this it's already complicated. Um, but the comp the added complication of this mysterious duration of observation care, uh, if you take that element out of it, I think it will be uh, more straightforward for providers. So, Dr. Rifkin, what do you think going forward? What is the role of evidence based guidelines as it pertains to directing? evidence-based patient care, uh, protection of revenue, those types of things? Well, I think, you know, to, to some degree, I actually think the two midnight rule sort of plays into the sweet spot of uh, guidelines, uh, evidence-based guidelines that examine, you know, the need for inpatient care. Um, because again, you, you sort of have to have some marker in your head of how bad does the heart failure need to be in order to warrant inpatient care. So having this um, fixed rubric, I think, plays into the hands of evidence-based guidelines, because then you can say, okay, here's the um, uh, sort of the finish line. And so now you can create criteria that, dis that, that help you distinguish somebody who's doing well in OBS care and might be ready to go home from somebody who's not doing so well in observation care. And also just on the front end, the, 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 uh, you know, pretty much any decision you examine that doctors make there's variation country, uh, areas of the country, hospital to hospital, even within doctors within a given hospital. At the, at the same time, they're making different decisions. Um, so a decision that is complicated as does this patient need inpatient care or not, something that is that consequential for the patient, that consequential for the system, certainly in terms of finances, um, is a very hard decision. And the the role of evidence-based guidelines would be to try and um, reduce the unexplained or, you know, not explained by clinical means variation doctor to doctor and sort of come to some sort of, of, of standard of how sick is sick enough for inpatient. And the reason that these things aren't, well, shouldn't doctors just know this already, 
is that, uh, first of all, there's many diagnoses and you can't know everything about everything. And one of the main issues is that over time, we've all noted that the patients in the hospital are sicker than they used to be. Everybody says, you know, the people in who used to be on the floors are now in the, uh, people used to be in the ICU are now on the floors. People that used to be uh, uh, admitted are now treated as outpatient. You know, everybody's gotten sicker. Now, the way that has happened is that the threshold to an admission has gotten higher. How sick you have to be with COPD or heart failure um, to warrant inpatient care has changed from what it was 15, 20 years ago. When a lot of us trained, if you were a heart failure patient and you had a new onset of hypoxemia due to pulmonary edema, that was an inpatient. That was an easy, obvious case. That's no longer the situation. It is now the standard that if it's really severe, yes, they can still be, they, they still warrant inpatient care. But if it's not that severe, there is such a thing as a trial of diuresis and observation care. And let's see how they feel tomorrow. And if they are better tomorrow, they can go home and not be admitted to inpatient. So the rheostat, I like to say, is that the, the, the clinicians have to have might need adjustment of their rheostat of how severely ill you need to be to get into to, to, to warrant inpatient care uh, across many diagnoses. And, and that's sort of where um, evidence-based guidelines, especially if they're mutually used, let's say, by payers and providers. So there's sort of this common playbook, this, this neutral safe harbor in the middle, just trying to objectively describe what is sick and what is less sick, uh, can be very useful uh, to sort of get everybody on the same page in terms of severity of illness. So as we wrap this topic up, let me ask both of you, what is the most important thing do you think for hospitals and health plans to do right now as they prepare for implementation of this final rule on Medicare Advantage? And Cheyenne, let's start with you. So I think right now, some of the most important things that uh, payers can do to prepare for this final rule is really to get very comfortable with the various CMS guidelines that are out and available. Uh, if you haven't looked at something like MCR and you need help understanding LCDs and NCDs, that is certainly something that we can help you to do. Um, I think also becoming more comfortable with the with the two midnight rule, but also understanding how you use the evidence to really support that two midnight expectation or support that skilled nursing facility level of care or support that inpatient rehab level of care, like un really understanding deep dive into those guidelines so that you understand how they are gonna round out the regulations that are provided by CMS to give you really the complete picture of what an inpatient admission should look like. Um, and then of course, for those payers that are already collaborating with MCG, you know, providing feedback to us of what is going to be your next most important uh, type of guideline or service that you feel like you're going to need for prior authorizations so that we can help you to meet the challenges that you're going to have in the next year. And Dr. Rifkin, what about you? What are your final thoughts? Well, from the, from the uh, angle that I've been speaking about in terms of the uh, inpatient only list and two midnight rule, I think the, the for, on the provider end, I think, um, and I think the inpatient only list is, is fairly straightforward. It's a matter of you know, ascertaining whether the, the, the procedure code is, is or is not on the list. So I think there's just a mechanical, the way you evaluate a patient or you consider when you're you know looking at a patient's procedure that you check it against this list that's that's sort of straightforward i do think that 
the two midnight rule, even though it's been around for a while, is not well understood by everybody uh, uh, on either the payer or the provider side, but speaking to the providers, I think a very important thing for hospitals, for example, is to make sure that their uh, hospitalists and their ED physicians, the people making the admit versus don't admit decision are correctly informed about the two midnight rule and what it means and what it doesn't mean. There's still a lot of misunderstanding. Like if I just keep them in the hospital for two midnights, therefore I've created an inpatient. And that's not the case. It depends if you needed to be in the hospital and unnecessary delays, waiting for a test, the family didn't come in. Those things don't count towards the two midnight. It's, it's that you required you know, a medical need for hospital-based care across two or more midnights. So, you know, there's still a lot of misinformation about it. Or, or on the other hand, if, you know, there's this belief that if somehow the doctor just writes in their note, I expect the patient to stay two or more midnights, that, that's, that, that certifies it. And that's, again, that's not the case. The case is going to be a clinical judgment, and these decisions are reviewed by auditors and others down the road. You know, at the, at the time the decision was made, does the chart reflect a level of severity that required medical uh, hospital-based care across two or more midnights? And so there's sort of two pieces to that. There's the, are they sick enough and you're making the right judgment? And then there's the, does the medical record reflect this? Is the note uh, useful? Uh, is, are, the, are, are the physician notes and observations and labs supporting what the physician is saying? And that's a, sort of another use case for evidence-based guidelines is that if, you know, if nothing else, you can look at these criteria and say, these are the key moving parts to document. If I want to make the case that this COPD patient needs to be in the hospital, here are the variables that I should be discussing and, and talking to. And we treated it, we didn't, they improved, they didn't improve. So you sort of, your note doesn't have to be long, but it can be uh, deep, if you will, and cover the right topics and make the case. But I do think that some of the denials out there are about documentation. If the patient was sick enough, and everybody would have agreed that they were sick enough, but the chart didn't reflect that. So I think, uh, you know, the, the provider side needs to really understand what the two midnight rule is and uh, try to get efficient, effective documentation of the decision-making in the chart. Um, from the payer side, I think some of it is helping their providers reach those goals of understanding the two midnight rule and understanding the need for documentation. But there's also, you know, from their end, you know, the position I'm in, I hear stories from payers about how providers uh, aren't doing things right. I hear from providers how payers aren't doing things right. So one of the things on the payer side and sort of the point of this new rule was to make clear to everybody that it's the two midnight rule, at least for Medicare and Medicare Advantage patients. It's not 72 hours, it's not three midnights, it's not one midnight, it's two midnights. So from the payer end, it's also going to be an adjustment, let's say for their Medicare Advantage arm, if they hadn't been operating on the two midnight rule, they also have to learn what the two midnight rule is, what it isn't, and how the decision-making in the ED is influenced now by this accepted duration of observation care. So I think there's a need for agreement on sort of the ground rules of observation care on both sides. And then if that's understood, then we can start talking about clinical things and are they sick? Are they not sick? But at least we know what the playing field is supposed to look like.
Well, we've covered a lot of information here today, and I do want to thank both uh, Bill and Cheyenne for taking the time to discuss this topic and, you know, provide insights on how this new rule, you know, impacts the use of clinical criteria and at least sets the goalposts for the two midnight. So thank you for, for offering those insights. My pleasure. Uh, glad to be here. And I, and I hope that this clarified guidance, if you will, will uh, allow our content will become even more useful to folks. Thanks so much for inviting me into this conversation. Uh, I really am looking forward to uh, what we can bring into the market space in the next year uh, to help our clients to get past these challenges and, and to be in compliance with the new final rule. So um, while it is a, a challenge, it's also a really exciting time to, to be in Medicare. So I appreciate the time and, and the ability to come and talk about a, a topic I'm passionate about. MCG Health, which is part of the Hearst Health Network, is a leading publisher of evidence-based guidance and technology solutions, which are trusted by a majority of U.S. health plans and over 2,800 hospitals. If you'd like to learn more about MCG, please visit our website, mcg.com, click on Contact Us and Submit an Inquiry, or you can call us at 1-888-464-4746. Thank you for joining us today.